Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is William Morgan. William is the CEO of Buoyant. Prior to founding Buoyant, he was an infrastructure engineer at Twitter, where he ran several teams building on product-facing backend infrastructure. He has worked at PowerSet, Microsoft, AdaptTV, and MITRE Corp. Welcome, William. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself? Um, Tell them how you got started in the industry? Well, it's a glorious story fraught with, uh, you know, many twists and turns. Actually, it's a pretty boring story, which is I, I... did a lot of computer stuff for a lot of time, you know, and and ended up working at various startups and things. And then, um, you know, at some point I ended up working at Twitter kind of in the early days of Twitter. This was maybe 2010 when I first got there. Um, and I had some experiences there that kind of pushed me really hard in the infrastructure world. Um, and, you know, everything we've, we've been doing at Buoyant uh, since then has been based around those experiences. So that's a very condensed uh you know story of how i ended up here okay yeah so um let's talk a little bit more about what you're working on these days yeah so i'm the ceo of a company called buoyant uh and we are mostly known in the kubernetes world at least uh for making a a service mesh an open source service mesh project called linkerd and a lot of what we do at buoyant is uh build Linkerd, talk about Linkerd and help uh, help companies operate Linkerd and help them understand what this thing is and why it matters and, and its relationship to the rest of the Kubernetes ecosystem. Okay. So what is it and why does it matter? Oh, gosh. I thought we were going to have a little more, <laughs> you know, lead up to the difficult questions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Linkerd is a service mesh, like I said, and and the the goal of a service mesh, actually Linkerd was the very first service mesh, and it's the one that has introduced that term to the world. So, you know, if nothing else, maybe I'll be remembered for marketing, you know, <laughs> term creating. Um, but the, the goal of a service mesh is to give you a set of features around uh, reliability and around observability, and most importantly, around security at the platform level, um, features that traditionally you had to build into your application. So rather than having the developers write these features, and I'm talking things like, um, you know, retries and load balancing and uh, mutual TLS, um, rather than writing those into your application, we try and deliver them at the platform level, you know, um, so that the developers stay happy because they can stay focused on business logic. Um, and then the platform team can own and control the sorts of uh, features that are directly relevant to their platform. So that's um, that's the goal. It's all open source. It works in this really crazy, weird way that doesn't make a lot of sense until you're, you know, deep into Kubernetes, and then it kind of makes sense. Um, and yeah, it's gotten a lot of traction. A lot of people using it. So it's you know, we have a very 
fun, healthy community full of uh, friendly faces. Yeah, and, and we're mostly developers um, for the most part. Uh, I know Ash has spent some time in the Kubernetes space and, and some time purely as uh, DevOps and supporting operations. Um, we we have spent some time on the stream, on, on live stream on Twitch, working through some Kubernetes challenges and, and doing some live coding there and trying to get Clayton up to speed because uh, Clayton is historically a, a developer that really doesn't care much about what his programs are, are running on about the infrastructure and such, having a good team to help him back, back him up there. Uh, so tr- not having to worry about those infrastructure concerns and uh, security concerns is appealing to a lot of folks, I would say uh, myself included. Uh, but w- what, what do developers need to understand about the security concerns with with the the security concerns with running on a platform like Kubernetes, for instance. Yeah, well, I'm totally on on Clayton's side, which is uh, you know my my philosophy is that the developers actually shouldn't really be exposed to Kubernetes, and not everyone agrees with that. But you know, in my model of the world, kind of the the roles that make a lot of sense, and certainly the ones that I see being successful. You know, when we look at companies that are adopting Kubernetes or that are adopting, you know, cloud native technology and are doing it well, the way I see that working is there is a platform team that, you know, owns a platform that's responsible for building that platform out. And that's basically a customer service team for the developers and the developers, you know, they understand that there's something that runs their code and and they kind of understand how to interact with the platform, um, but they are not required to be experts and they're not really required to understand it, right? They are required to understand their own code and to and to be not just developers of the code, but to be operators of it, right? We're trying to move away from the old world of throw it over the wall and, you know, hey, I write the code and now you operate it and you wake up for it, right? But we've separated, we've separated into these two roles where there's a platform role and there's a developer role. So I'm very much on that side. Now, you asked about security, my, you know, security is a, you know, like reliability, like observability, like all of these things that we want in our systems, it's a multifaceted uh, uh, challenge, right? And you can't say that, oh, developers don't have to worry about security, right? Like security requires the code to be written in a certain way. It requires the platform to have certain properties and it requires the two of them to play, play nicely together. But, you know, one of the, one of the most powerful security features that something like Linkerd brings into the Kubernetes platform is this idea of mutual TLS, right? Where among other things, it's encrypting the communication between all pods, it's validating identity on both sides. It has all these nice properties around um, integrity and confidentiality and you know authenticity. But the actual code behind TLS and mutual TLS is really complicated. It's hard to get right. And it's decoupled from business logic. So there's no reason that Clayton or really any developer should be spending their precious brain juices on like trying to do mutual TLS. They, in my opinion, they should be focused on the business logic, right? On, on building the fundamental economic engine of the business and the MTLS stuff, like let's handle that at the platform layer. So that's my very long-winded answer to, you know, what is the relationship between, I guess, generally developers and security and, and the platform and security. Everyone has to work together, but there's different components that they each have to be responsible for. 
Yeah, so can we take maybe just one little step backwards and talk about what T- MTLS is or mutual TLS is? Yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting, this is a really interesting topic. So let me actually take a, a further step backwards and let me explain how the service mesh works because I kind of alluded to the fact that it's really weird, right? And so actually I'll take three steps backwards and let me go back to the the origins the origin story <laughs> back when I was young and full of energy and was working at Twitter <laughs> uh, because actually I think having some of that context helps. So uh, back in the olden days, Twitter had this uh, monolithic Ruby on rails application lovingly known as the monorail. And it was uh, under a lot of stress. And it would fall over a lot. And there's all sorts of funny, you know, stories. And it kind of became so notorious for falling over that there was a icon, the fail whale. And, you know, it became almost this, this like cultural thing where it's like, oh, isn't that cute? Twitter's failing over again, failing again, <laughs> you know, which was kind of inter- interesting. And maybe there's some, you know, some interesting like humanities research to be done there. Um, but <laughs> the, you know, that wasn't a great situation. So when I joined, we were just on the beginnings of shifting from this monolithic Ruby on Rails application to basically what we would now call a cloud native architecture. Now it wasn't actually on the cloud. You know, we didn't have a lot of the words that we have today. We didn't have containers. We didn't have microservices. We called this thing an SOA, but we were basically breaking this monorail down into these different, or this monolith down to these different services. We were running them on this brand new system called Mesos which was basically a grad student project at that point, which we had to productionize. We were containerizing them sort of by putting them in the JVM, which gave us, um, and, and using C groups. So we had, you know, kind of process isolation and, and resource constraints and stuff like that. And the most amazing thing about this is that it actually worked, right? Like for, that was astounding, right? For such a big transformation to happen, and so you fast forward a couple of years, one of the things that was really critical to Twitter being able to successfully do that transformation was it, it, had, it had built a library, an open source library called Finagle that managed the communication between these services, right? Because the big transfer, I mean, there's a lot of big transformations, right? We had moved from kind of manuals servers where you would go and like you'd have full access to the machine and you'd get three of them and you had to go bribe the guy to give you a machine you know when you need a fourth one to like this orchestrated environment you know and all these other transformations but one of the big ones was there was a new type of traffic in the system which is a traffic between services and twitter had had the foresight thanks to some very uh you know foresightful developers to manage that communication explicitly okay so it's library finagle did all this stuff. It did retries and did timeouts and like did, it didn't do MTLS, but it like, you know, did all this cool stuff. And so the impetus behind the service mesh when we finally left Twitter was to take that library and say, okay, instead of, um, you know, instead of this, it was a Scala library. It's like, who's going to run that? Right. Like you have to, you have to, you have to be on Scala, <laughs> which, you know, Twitter was, but kind of an accident of, of, of history. So our genius innovation was to say, well, we'll just wrap that in a proxy. And you'll stick that proxy next to every application, right? And so if you look at the way the service mesh works, that's that's what it does. Instead of giving you a library that you have to develop against and that has to work into your frameworks and your languages, you just run these little proxies next to each application. 
And the, the, the reason why that actually makes sense is because Kubernetes makes that as a deploy time cha- uh, choice, Kubernetes makes that manageable. So if you have 5,000 pods in Kubernetes, you're going to run 5,000 proxies next to each one. That sounds insane. And it would have been insane until you had a system like Kubernetes that basically gave you a model for doing that, for deploying that and for managing them and, and, and all that stuff. So the service mesh works by inserting lots and lots of these proxies everywhere. And that's what allows it to be transparent to the application. So Clayton or, you know, the sorry, Clayton, I keep picking on you, but like, you know. The de- that's, that's fine. You're not the only one. <laughs> the, the developers <laughs> of the world don't really need to know that the service mesh is there because it's not a library. They don't have to integrate against it. Um, and uh, the way it works is all communication between the microservices or between services in your cluster will go through the proxies. And in fact, it'll not just go through one. If A is talking to B, it's going to go through two proxies. It will go through the client side proxy and the server side proxy. Okay. I promise I'm getting to mutual TLS, but let me pause there. <laughs> Does that make sense so far? With with you so far, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just going to do a little bit of speculation here, but I'm guessing that those two pro- those proxies then running side by side are going to then spin up inside the, the same node as when they, what the application's running, or maybe you'll be getting to that. Yeah, so not just in the same node, but it's actually going to be in the same pod. Oh, in the same pod. This is yeah. known as a sidecar sort of container. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. And that ends up being really, really important for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that you have very nice distributed systems kind of aspect here where every time you create a new instance of your application, you, you know, a new pod as part of your replica set, as part of your deployment, then you get a new proxy, right? So we start, you know, all of the logic that gets distributed out and you don't have the central uh, point of failure. And those set of proxies is known as the data plane. Um, and then you've got a control plane off to the side that's like coordinating all the behavior and, you know, you can run replicas of that and, and so on. Um, but the other really interesting thing there is because is is having the proxy there that handles all it intercepts basically all TCP communication to and from that pod. That proxy can now act as an enforcement point for security, right? And so now we finally get ourselves to to mutual TLS because what the proxy is going to do is it's going to initiate and it's going to terminate TLS in between pods, right? And that gives us confidentiality, so it gives uh, uh, encryption, basically. It gives us integrity, so whatever one uh, whatever one pod is sending, the other pod is guaranteed to receive, and it gives, it gives us authenticity. And that's where, the, that's where things get interesting. So TLS is a thing that our browsers are using, right? Every time we point our browser to a website and we see a little green lock icon, I don't even make it green anymore, it's just like a little lock icon. That's because our browsers are speaking TLS. Right, so our browser is going to the server and saying, "Hey, I expect you to be, um, you know, buoyant.io, and prove to me that you are." And then TLS, you know, has this mechanism of basically the server authenticating itself and saying, "Here's here's why I'm buoyant.io, and you can trust me because of X, Y, Z." And there's like, you know, public key infrastructure and public key cryptography and all sorts of cool stuff to make that you know kind of proof happen, even if my browser has never talked. To point IO before, there's a way of trusting the, you know, kind of the, that statement. And mutual TLS is just like that, except that the client is also authenticated in that same way. So normally, if my browser connects to point.io, 
right? The, uh, it's authenticating that this is actually who I'm talking to, right? It's authenticating this is actually Buoyant.io. It's not some imposter. But Buoyant.io is not really authenticating anything about my browser because it doesn't care, right? On just like some browser out there. But in Mutual TLS, we do authentication of the client as well. And so we say, okay, you know, if I'm A talking to B and it's happening, you know, HTTP, just like my browser, TLS, just like my brother, but browser, but, you know, I'm within a Kubernetes cluster, we might as well validate both sides. And I have to prove that I'm A and you have to prove that you're B. And now we can have, you know, a, a, a safe type of communication between us. Those identities end up being really interesting, right? Because now you have basically this cryptographic proof of like, you are A and I'm B, right? And of course we can, you know, we can encrypt stuff based on those identities so that we can be sure that only A is receiving this message and so on. Um, but we can also start doing policy on top of those things too. So we can say, is A allowed to talk to B? You know, are we, you know, is it allowed to have this kind of communication? So we can do a lot of stuff once you have those identities in there. And the magic of the, the service mesh basically is that, yes, you can do this by yourself. Right, Clayton could implement mutual TLS, but it gets really, really complicated because it involves certificates and lots of rotation and like all this other stuff. So Linkerd can basically do this for you. And mutual TLS has been around for a long, long time, but basically it's so complicated you never really want to do it. It's it's kind of impractical to do this at you know at, at scale, except we can actually automate a whole lot of that. And so now we've gotten so fancy with Linkerd that the moment you install it, we're basically doing MTLS for you automatically between all meshed pods, which is pretty amazing. So you're not even turning anything on, you're just like installing Linkerd and tonight you have all this, you know, crazy powerful uh, traffic security in place. Okay, so with, uh, with like normal TLS, like the kind that your browser uses, um, you have to go out and you, you well, most companies, pay some service to generate a certificate for them that they can use for all of that authentication. With MTLS, if I've got 5,000 pods and they all need to communicate, am I having to generate certificates for each one of those pods? Yeah, great question. Great question. So you're right. When your browser is communicating with like buoyant.io or, or whatever, your browser actually ships with a set of what are called trust routes. And those trust routes say, here are like here's the trusted authorities that I that I trust, you know, because Google Chrome told me I could, or Mozilla told me I could, or whatever, um, to validate those identities. So, like, if I connect to Point.io and you know it says I'm Point.io, then I can ask, okay, well, how do I know? That's what you're saying, okay, that's great, but how do I know that's like I, that I should trust that statement? And I can go through the trust route, and like this is where certificate authorities and, and whatever go in there. Um, so it gets, yeah, it gets a little complicated within a cluster, right? We don't actually need to go to the outside world, right? Because within a cluster, it's all, it's our little self-contained domain. So the way that it works is Linkerd ships with a little certificate authority that is able to issue certificates itself. And then every pod, you know, the proxy in that pod is basically talking to the control plane and saying, Hey, can you please give me a new certificate from that certificate authority? And by the way, you know, here's my service account, which is what we use to bootstrap identity. And like, here's some other properties. And, 
um, uh, every, not only that, but every 24 hours, it asks for a new certificate. So we issue these short-lived certificates and we rotate them as a defense against someone losing, you know, control over one of the, one of the certificates. So if, if it leaks out to the wild, well, at least you've scoped it to 24 hours. And there's like different layers of this, but yeah, it gets complicated quickly. But yeah, that's a basic mechanism. You're exactly right. It's issuing certificates and it's not like signed by some identity, you know, by some party in the third, you know, by some party in the outside world. It's signed by something that's sitting on the control plane itself. All right. And I guess the the kind of the follow-up question, which uh, maybe you alluded to, is if if all of my services are in the same is it cluster? Is that the right mm-hmm. word? <laughs> yeah. If all of my services are in the same cluster, is 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 that not a closed network? Like why why do we need the TLS? Why can't they just already be trusted? I see. So, you know, why bother with any of this stuff? Everything's running on the cluster, you know. So it's a it's a question, I think, of of defense in depth. So the, um, you know, kind of the traditional approach to security has been to harden the outside layer to say, okay, no one's allowed into this cluster and therefore everything that happens within the cluster, you know, we can be, we can do whatever we want because no one's allowed in and they're, you know, except good guys and therefore like everything's okay. So the more modern security thinking is basically, and there's various terms for this, you know, zero trust is one that gets bandied about, but it's basically about taking that boundary and shrinking it to a small a possible a, a small an area as possible so rather than enforcing all these rules at the cluster boundary we can shrink them down and enforce them at the pod boundary and we can say you know what we actually don't trust anything outside this pod therefore we're going to like communicate in a secure way and we're going to validate the identities and all that stuff that means if someone comes into the you know into the cluster network and somehow gets access then they're not able to you know, sniff the communication or, um, uh, you know, the more, more common scenarios, you accidentally deploy something that's not supposed to make a bunch of calls and it starts making these calls and, you know, those calls will be rejected because they don't have the identity required by the, the proxies. Okay. So, so in theory, it should be a closed network. Hackers got a hack. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. And, you know, I think especially if you think about when people are running on the cloud, you don't really have control over the network anyways, right? Like you're running this thing up in AWS or Azure or GCP or whatever. And like you have no, you know, it's not your wires, you know, it's not like you have someone in the data center with a cage and a gun or whatever. <laughs> right? It's like, do we? <laughs> you have no idea what's going on there. So you, you just want to want to reduce the amount that you have to trust the outside world. How how does what's the it seems like you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but uh what's the integration effort on the developer side? Like is there something is like a special client or communication or are they just simply making a call to the, you know, pod name next door? Yeah, usually the most the most work they have to do is they have to turn stuff off or they have to throw some code away. So if you are already doing TLS, you know, yourself to these other pods, just turn that off and let Linkerd handle it for you. If you're already doing like retries of requests in some way, turn that off because Linkerd can do a, a better job. 
So it's transparent, but usually it obviates some of the functionality you may have already built in there. Okay. And it, it does that extend beyond... So it makes sense to me if this is all happening inside of one Kubernetes cluster, right? But what if I what if I wanted to communicate between two clusters? Oh, yes. Yes. A man after my own heart. The nature of Kubernetes itself just inevitably pushes you towards multi-cluster, in my opinion. Like, it's just, it's too hard to run large, multi-tenant Kubernetes clusters. You can do it, but like, you're fighting against, you know, everything about Kubernetes. You don't have hierarchical namespaces. You don't have like, I mean, you know, CRDs are created cluster-wide. Like you have all these things that just don't get really hard if you're trying to do multi-tenant. So you end up running multiple clusters or you're doing it anyways for HA reasons, you know, or for uh, latency reasons because you want to be close to your, um, you know, yeah, close to your customer. So yeah, everything, uh, I love this question because a big design goal for us, Linkerd has this, you know, really nice multi-cluster support, which basically means communication between clusters and our design goal is to make it so that everything all the guarantees we're giving you about pod to pod communication also extend to cross cluster communication so if you make a call from a to b and b happens to be in a different cluster well we're also going to do mutual tls across the cluster boundary doesn't matter like a traverse the open internet if you want doesn't matter like we're going to tls the heck out of it so that it doesn't matter what like network it's traversing. And then that identity is gonna be passed through too. So on the other side, you will know that this came from a cluster that's within your same trust domain. And then, you know, we try and make that also totally uh, transparent to the developer. So if you're A and you're talking to B, you just say, you know, connect me to B and it doesn't matter whether B's on the same cluster or the remote cluster. In fact, you could be shifting traffic. You know, there's like traffic, splitting mechanisms so you could send you could shift traffic from the local b to the remote b and like the application doesn't even know about it you know except i guess latency gets bigger which sometimes has a has an impact yeah what what's the local development story like does is that come into play with what we're speaking about as well that i can run uh my my application locally and communicate with the the cluster in whatever cloud out there yeah, that's definitely a use case we've we've explored a little bit. I've actually found that there's other tools that are a lot better for that. There's things like telepresence and like there's and there's other ones that are out there that are just much more focused on that use case. So um, it's it's doable. I mean, especially if you're running a local Kubernetes cluster and it's talking to a remote Kubernetes cluster, you could use Linkerd use multi-cluster stuff. But um, yeah, if it's usually there's a better tool for that. Yeah, I feel I feel like that. I I know we this is a little bit beyond MLTS, or but um, in the Kubernetes space, I you you had mentioned your opinion about the developer being sort of abstracted away from that, um, and I think that that's a pretty good thought. But then, like, how how like how do we manage the situation of that local development and production now has this pretty main piece of hardware that's a service mesh and it's going to do retrying logic and all that sort of stuff and do I want to be able to 
test and see that my, you know, my app, I mean, obviously we will run, run some integration tests or something like that. That's, that's great. But like when I'm hands-on working on it, do I really want that behavior to be slightly different than what's going to happen in production? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, the, I mean, this isn't specific to Kubernetes. This is the age old question of <laughs> how do I, you know, how do I have a development experience that uh, can be validated against production data in a way that's safe? You know? Yeah. And what but it seems like Docker offered us like pretty much that, like on the platter, right? Like you're going to run this operating system here. Here you go. Mm-hmm. You're going to get prod. But then we're going, oh, wait a second, Kubernetes is coming and going, yeah, but we're going to have sidecars and we're going to like do all this other stuff for you and you won't have to worry about it. Like, I don't know. It seems like a bait and switch. It definitely got more complicated. And I don't think there's I don't think there's a great solution yet. I I mean, I I think this is something that the industry as a whole is still trying to come to terms with, which is, you know, how do these poor developers interact with this thing? And I've. You know, I've seen some people who say developers should understand Kubernetes and they should become Kubernetes experts. I'm like, I don't know. I just I have a hard time believing that's the answer. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the the story has gotten better over the last couple yeah. of years, but I feel like we're 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 still missing that quantum leap forward to where it's back to. Oh, it's just it's an afterthought. It it happens. Um, we don't even care that it happens. We just know that it does and. Um, you know, at some point we'll get there, but I think it is important at least right now to have the awareness of what is happening so that we can take that into account in our, in our planning, in our design strategy sessions and things like that. I mean, I think we can all agree Kubernetes would be a lot easier if there were no developers and we could just <laughs> run these clusters without having to run any applications on them. So catch 22, no, no developers, no Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> um my yeah my my that's 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 what my hang up is with with kubernetes like i i love the the idea that i could run a production um imitating cluster on my local machine like i could have developer testing scenarios pre-configured through some kind of um uh configuration as code kind of deal and then i just run my 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 run script whatever that is and it basically fires up a prod style environment on my local machine that i can edit this code test it against all the other code that's that's currently in the in the master branch or the main branch and then you know then i know that oh it's going to interact with the current version of whatever else is going on and i'm and i'm good to go and I didn't have to worry about, you know, pulling up uh, QA in in my uh, chat program of choice or sending out an email asking if I could change some data because it's all local. I, I love that idea, like just develop without interference of having to worry about all that other stuff and still have access to all the services without worrying about breaking even other developers. But Geez, it's so hard to configure to even get the simplest thing going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So one, you know, one thing that's not in Linkerd today, but that you know, is we, we are now as of the latest release, which happened 2.11 was like a couple of weeks ago. We're now set up to do is 
we can start doing policy based on things like HTTP verbs. So we could say, hey, you know, if someone has a dev cluster over here, it's actually allowed to talk to production, but it's only allowed to issue gets, you know, and heads, and it's not allowed to issue puts and posts. And, you know, that's an interesting model, you know, where you could potentially have the dev clusters talk to prod in a, in a safer way. I don't know how much of a panacea that really is though, because then you get into gRPC, which is like only posts and then, okay, well, maybe you annotate those methods with like, this is an okay one, this one's not. And then, okay, we could build policy off of that. But like, you know, we, I don't know what the right solution is, but we're set up to now do that sort of thing. So, I, you know, that may help at least with one type of testing. Yeah, just just predict the future. Skip gRPC and wait for gRest to come out. <laughs> is that is that how, is that a real thing? Well, we're gonna we're gonna do gRPC and then we'll have gSoap and then and then we'll move oh, back okay. over to uh, to gRest. Yeah, well, gSoap I look forward to. That should be <laughs> maybe XML. It'll be like YAML. It'll be yeah. It'll be uh, soap soap over YAML. That'll be awesome. <laughs> I'm sure that's. I'm sure that that must be out there. It's it's common. I'm sure of it. So be so be. So we only rotate ideas. So <laughs> we we also don't let Clayton come up with them. But <laughs> so so what's next? What what are you working on that uh, that we can look forward to, or or what are what are the next big challenges that we all need to be aware of that need to be solved? Oh gosh, I'm like so myopic on the service mesh. Space. I don't know what the next, I mean, next big challenge is probably climate change, man. Like, what are we, what are we doing with Kubernetes? There's like, <laughs> we're not going to have a place to run these servers, you know, except maybe the moon. Um, no, I think, you know, for us, what's been interesting being in the middle of the, the kind of service mesh stuff for so long is it's, you know, that the, you see the audience really mature. And I think this happened with Kubernetes as well, where the early adopters were very much people who wanted to become service mesh experts and were capable of doing that. And were like, you know, Linkerd contributors as well as operators. And, um, you know, and then over time, we found people who now are coming into the project and, you know, they don't want to contribute. They don't want to like under they don't even really want to understand it which is fine like they want to get the benefits and they want to move on and actually i really like that i really like that because i i i think for any technology to 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 really be successful you shouldn't have to understand what's under the hood you should be able to get the benefits and move on so a lot of what we've been doing both on the linkerd side but also on the buoyant side is building ways by which you can adopt linkerd and not have to become a service mesh expert right and i think the the, the big vision, you know, at least my, I don't know if it's big, my vision, my tiny vision is that, you know, in the future, you you can run Linkerd without having to be a server, without having to be a Linkerd expert at all. Um, and, you know, I would like to, ideally, I'd like to host it entirely for you, but, you know, you can't actually really do that with the service mesh because the shape of the technology, you know, matters and those proxies actually need to be running on your, on your cluster can't like run the proxies outside of the cluster without it being bad. Um, but maybe some of that operational burden, you know, we can start taking it on for you and we can give you ways where you could just like offload that to 
to someone else. So that's a lot of the focus. We have a SaaS product now called Buoyant Cloud, which allows you to attach your Linkerd cluster to it. And it starts taking on some of the operational burden. It starts giving you alerts and it starts like monitoring kind of proactively. Oh, here's here's how your Linkerd you know, thing is doing. Oh, this thing probably needs some more memory. Oh, over here, like you've got a certificate that needs to, you know, it's going to expire soon. So it's not 100% of the story right now, but we are actually starting to take on some of the, you know, some of the pain. And, you know, as, as easy, <laughs> there's a lot of service meshes out there and, and Linkerd is known primarily for being simple, but as simple as we make it, it still sucks to run software, man. It's like, it's still like, okay, cool. Like the, it, it, it feels cool to install it and you get this, you know, moment of temporary elation. And then like three months later, you're like, oh God, you know, still, I got to <laughs> upgrade, you know? And, Oh, it's something's breaking and they're blaming the service mesh. Now I got to go dig in and, and see what's going on. Um, so, you know, I do have a lot of empathy for people who run Linkerd as simple as we try to make it as simple as running a new software sucks. Yeah, that, that kind of goes to what my question was going to be. And it, it seems like you've mostly mostly answered it. So I'll sort of pair it with another one. But just wondering to understand that. Um, that story of getting like you know it sounds sounds like a great product and you know I'd like to bring it into Kubernetes like what, oh, sounds what, amazing right <laughs> and you know so what do I, what do I need to do um, and you know to kind of like pair that with you know are there resources out there that you have um, that you guys could point people to to you know say you know how, what can I learn more how can I get started all that sort of stuff right yeah yeah so we've done. You know, we've spent a lot of time and energy trying to make it a little easier to operate Linkerd. Um, we have, you know, obviously there's a whole bunch of introductory um, docs out there to just get your hands dirty. Because I think that's the most that's the best way to learn any technology. But then we also have this production runbook. We've just published a runbook. It's like here's our production recommendations for running Linkerd. Um, and then what's been really interesting, actually, for us. For a long time, we didn't run Linkerd ourselves. We were just making open source. And it was, you know, it's like shipping CDs. You cut a release on Friday and like you go home, you know, you know, good luck, everyone. Download it and let us know how it goes. Um, but now we're running it ourselves because Point Cloud itself is like powered by Linkerd. So now we're like running into all these things. We're like, oh man, we really should fix that. Oh, that's weird. Oh, okay. You know, so it really gives you uh, a different appreciation for the, you know, for the end user when you become one yourself. Um, and so that, you know, a bunch of that has, you know, worked its way into the runbook, of course, but also into the product itself. Like, you know, uh, a lot of what we do at Buoyant, the company has helped people adopt Linkerd and part of that is providing support and, and stuff. And I really don't like the model, like the standard model of support seems to be like, okay, well, here you go. Like if this, if this breaks, you can wake us up at three in the morning and we'll help you fix it. Like you know, that's, and that's what people expect. And I don't like that a, because I don't want to wake up at three in the morning, although now I can pay people to do that for me. Um, but B, because like, that's, you know, that's like the emergency room model of support. Right. And like, it's, I get you know, it's good for there to be an emergency room, but you should go to the doctor you know, often and maintain a healthy lifestyle and exercise and eat vegetables and all that. And so I'm trying to encode as much of that into buoyant cloud as possible. So we can be really proactive with that software and we can say, Hey, look, you've got this issue that you should address now. It's not a big problem now, but like, if you let this fester, then like you're going to end up in the ER. 
Um, and so, you know, I think there's an opportunity to kind of flip the support model on its head. And this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Support's not like super sexy, but it's it's our main interaction point with so many Linkerd adopters that I really want it to be good. I want it to be like, oh yeah, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. I really like the uh, more preventative maintenance idea versus a support you call me kind of thing. Like that's right. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do, you know, we still have the emergency room. I don't think we can ever take that away. <laughs> right. But we, we try. It's in everyone's best interest if you never go there. If it's there, but you never, you know, it's like insurance. Best if you have it, but never need to use it. So, um, what have you found helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Go on as many podcasts as possible. Speak your opinions as if state them as if they were facts, and then let the let the world burn <laughs> around you. That's worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd say you know at least in this in this little area, the thing that has the only thing that's really made a difference for me has been getting dirty, like getting into the weeds and being on call for services that you've written yourself, you know, struggling, struggling with Mesos or, or whatever it is. That's what I cut my teeth on struggling with Kubernetes. I think it's, you know, I think it's good that there's certifications and online classes and stuff, but nothing, nothing beats getting in there and, and having to be responsible for something. So I think my advice is basically get a job, man, like get a job doing this stuff. You know, it's the details are going to change over time, right? Like, Mesos was was the the hot thing um, for a long time, and you know even when I left Twitter, it was like the ascendant, glorious piece of technology. Now it's Kubernetes, and like probably another five years, it'll be some other thing. It'll be G Soap or whatever. So the details change, but like you getting in there and getting your hands dirty and learning, you know what it's like to debug a service and what it's like to, you know, deploy something at three in the morning or uh, making it sound making it sound horrible, what it's like to, you know, have the glory of being on call for something. It really makes a difference. So that's my advice. Get a job. <laughs> Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? I have actually have another bit of advice, which is maybe this is specific to, I don't know. This is probably, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of noise, a lot of noise in the cloud native space. And probably that's, that's true in other areas too, but you have to develop certain skills to be able to see through, like what is the stuff that people are talking about because they're convinced that talking about this thing is going to be, you know, good for them personally versus what are the stuff that's actually useful to you, you know, and, and what is the stuff that's actually going to make a difference and the clearest, the most concise, you know, tool that I've found for that is developing the skill of understanding what problem you're trying to solve. And it's amazing to me, you know, how, how hard that is. Not, you know, not because, well, I guess, because humans are stupid, you know, like <laughs> we just naturally that's, it's hard for us to do this, but if you can develop that skill, if you can get really good at understanding what problem specifically you're trying to solve and not being over prescriptive about the solution. And my, my, my co-founder, Oliver Gould is like the master of this be really clear with yourself about what problem you're trying to solve and then analyze the various solutions by their ability to solve that problem. Then you can cut through a tremendous amount of noise, tremendous amount. 
And it's really like service mesh it's awful for this. It's just awful. There's like so much noise. But with that one, with that one weird trick, you can cut through the noise and you can find, you know, the, where the real value is. Cause there's a lot of value in there if you can, if you can do that. Um, okay, you asked about where to find more of my glorious opinions. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle's at WM. Uh, and you can go to linkerd.io to learn or, uh, learn about Linkerd. It's also at Linkerd if you want to follow Linkerd on Twitter. And um, yeah, I think from there, there'll be various other links and things you can go to. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. That was William Morgan. William is the CEO of Buoyant. Prior to founding Buoyant, he was an infrastructure engineer at Twitter, where he ran several teams building on product-facing backend infrastructure. He has worked at PowerSet, Microsoft, Adapt TV, and MITRE Corp, and has been contributing to open source for over 20 years. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!